This is the Learning Capacity Podcast. You're with Colin Klubik. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. You might be wondering what coal seam gas has to do with learning, but for ordinary Australian and now filmmaker Dane Pratsky, the frack man, it's become a major issue. For those of you not familiar with the coal seam gas issue in Australia and the frack man film, have a listen to this quick intro from the film's trailer before we dive into Dane's fascinating journey of learning. Sit down as you listen to this. 437 million hectares of Australia is covered by coal seam gas licences or applications. I lived in Sydney. It was some of the best times of my life. And then I'd hit 30. What did I have? Nothing. I got on the internet and I found some land in, in Tara. It's called the Tara Estate. The dream was to develop a property and potentially start a family. <laughs> One day a guy drove down my driveway and said, I'm Queensland Gas Company, we're going to sink a well down the back of your place, and if you don't like it, there's nothing you can do about it. But our land sat on top of billions of dollars worth of gas, and the industry, we're going to stop at nothing to get it. They all say it's safe. I have to live here. I think nearly every kid in this estate's sick. There's hydrogen sulphide in the air. That's what's making everyone sick. Blood just falls out of his nose. You see your friends like this. This when I actually get angry. There's nobody out there to help us. I'm the worst environmental activist this world's ever seen. But in the end, it was the only way to get something done. It sounds like a scary story. And for those people with coal seam gas wells on their properties, it is. But the Frackman movie is a story of perseverance. Of how ordinary people can rise up to do extraordinary things with abilities they never knew they possessed. We also know that this is not just a story about one man, it's a story that ultimately involves all of us as we question our nation's future energy supply. What can we learn from it, and what will we do about it? Dane Pratsky, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, I appreciate it. Look, I'd like to get onto your personal journey shortly, but to give our listeners a little bit more context, uh, you've been given a couple of uh, really cool-sounding labels, somewhat affectionately, I would imagine, uh, such as the frack man and an accidental activist. Tell me, did this transformation take place the moment the Queensland Gas Company drove down your driveway, or did it take a while to sink in? Did they leave and you think, what was all that about? What's about to happen? Can you talk me through that? It's quite funny, you know. Uh, That's why the story is so um, captivating to a lot of people. Uh, You know, little did I know that the guy, uh, the moment that guy drove down my driveway, I automatically became an activist basically because I disagreed with what the government uh, was trying to you know, force upon me. So I had no idea at that point in time it would change my life, but it definitely has. And look, I, I still don't call myself an activist. I, I'm, I'm just the average Aussie bloke who decided that was enough was enough. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of people are activists and they don't know it. If, you, if you're upset about anything that the government says, well, you, you're, you're branded as an activist. And unfortunately, the activist tag has, um, you know, some people don't look at it as endearing, but... Um, you know, and I say I'm not an activist, but it, people who who identify themselves as activists should be proud, and and I can see why because they generally stand up for uh, for what's good in the world. Well, I'm just thinking about that image that we see in the in the in the movie promotional material where you're standing there in a white suit with a gas mask on, saying "No fracking way." Uh, I think that's a dead ringer for an activist, though, wouldn't you say? <laughs> oh, look, see, uh, yeah, yes, in in some respects it is, but for me. Uh, I learned to use the media, and that's one of the tools that activists or people who are trying to get a message across 
uh, have to learn, and that's the way of the media. And I learned that they needed images, and they wanted a striking image. And a guy standing there in a hazmat suit with a gas mask instantly says toxic. And, <laughs> and, and that's what the, the message I wanted to get across. So I only ever put that suit on three times in my entire life. But every <laughs> single time I did it, I ended up on the news. Uh, <laughs> It was because I tried not to make a nuisance of myself, but I really wanted to get my point across. And to be honest with you, it was one of those endearing images, once again, that has uh, cemented me in the public eye, so to speak. Yeah, well, look, I was completely convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Great. You got your your hook, line and sinker the minute you saw it. Yes, you certainly did. Look, uh, I'm really curious now, after having uh, moved off your land, it's uh, it's been some time now. I would imagine that uh, coal seam gas activities are just sort of going ahead full steam. Can you tell us what, what would it actually be like to live in that area now? I mean, we you know, people who are listening to this are most likely going to be living in a suburban environment, maybe in a city somewhere, somewhere like that. People generally don't know what this kind of infrastructure looks like or what it's like to live around. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, look, at uh, the, the area in Chinchilla region has been decimated, I say, by the coal seam gas industry. It, it was a rural uh, landscape where, you know, people grew food. They, they uh, were a lot of cotton farmers out there. There's a lot of feedlots. People raise cattle. And there were some lifestyle blocks as well, which are, when they say lifestyle blocks, they're not good for farming, but they're good to live on. So I had 250 acres of what was called a lifestyle block. What we found was that most people moved there for the, for the lifestyle or to run a business on a farm. Once the coal seam gas industry came over the top of us, it, it was we were at competing land uses and competing for water and competing for resources. Now, this is not coal seam gas that goes into our barbecues. This is coal seam gas that heads off to China and India. So we are being asked to, to pay the price so China and India can have a cheaper energy source. And I don't think that's, that's fair. So the, the whole area ended up being industrialised. Um, and when you, you live in a rural setting, that's what you're there for. You, you're not there to live in a, in a factory, so to speak. And that's what it ended up like. If you see it from the air, it's like um, a pin cushion uh, of gas wells everywhere with big ponds and massive reverse osmosis plants, which cleans the dirty water, tries to clean the dirty water. There's drilling rigs everywhere. There's pipelines. It, it really is a distortion of of the country. It's, it's really quite a shame what's happened to that beautiful Darling Downs district. It must be pretty uh, taxing on the roads, you know, with semi-trailers and stuff driving around. Is, is it dangerous in that respect? When the industry first came to town, I was surprised there weren't more deaths. Uh, in the end, most of the deaths came from workers who drove out there and they just drove absolutely crazy. They didn't understand the roads. They were single carriageways. And when I say single carriageway, when you had to overtake somebody, you would put two wheels off the road and the, and the oncoming vehicle put two wheels off the road and you would slow down and you would just pass that way. Uh, once the industry came along, it just became a death trap, an absolute death trap. And you can see in the film some of the points where I have to drop drop the wheels off the road and the, the trucks didn't understand to slow down because they, they weren't local people. Uh, and the, the, the staggering cost of, to the council, which is end up being the rate payers, to maintain those roads mm-hmm. for an industry that's taking 87% of the profits offshore. It's very, very unfair that that sort of thing happens. 
So we've got the larger scale infrastructure that people have to live with that's around them, but then on a uh, on a more individual level, just without going into too much of the science, just so that our listeners get an idea of what's actually going on, someone walks in onto your land and then they say, I'm going to put a drilling rig in, I'm going to sink a well on your land, and then I'm going to uh, fracture the ground underneath where you live or near where your house is, I guess, reasonably close, and just start mining operations. I mean, on your land. Is that right? That's correct. So, you know, in the early days, what happened was that the, if you own the land, you own the resources underneath it. Well, early in the 19th century, the federal government decided they would take that right away and they gave it, uh, the, the crown now owns the resources. And it was mainly back in the early days when, you know, the kings in, in England wanted the gold and the copper uh, underground. And so, so they basically took those rights from the people. They did exactly the same thing in Australia, but they did it with oil, gas and coal as well. And their thought process behind that was this resource should be for the greater good. Well, what it did is it, it neglected the person who had to live with that uh, resource extraction. So for myself, they wanted to drill 10 wells on my place and I was just supposed to suck it up and I was supposed to take a compensation package from them, which amounted, for me, they were offering $1,500 a well, but it made my property, uh, property it rendered it useless to me. Uh, I moved there for the peace and quiet, not for a drilling rig next to my house. Yeah. But look, they say you don't have the right, but I said trespass overrides uh, the, the the crown owning the resources and no one wants to push that issue and the industry doesn't want to push that into I- issue because they know they potentially will lose uh, so it's one of those things that they say you don't have the right but I still feel you do it's just whether you decide to push that issue okay look com- coming back to your your personal journey and, I, and I'm calling it your your learning journey you must have felt completely out of your depth I mean when this thing started to become an issue for you can you share with us what was actually going on in your mind when you knew that this was going to become really, really big? Oh, look, it's it's one of those tricky situations where you don't realise what you're doing is going to become big. Um, I was really looking after myself and my neighbours because of what was directly happening to us. And when I looked into the project, I worked out, wow, this is actually a huge, huge project that is going to affect hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, so I, I, I never really – there wasn't that defining moment where, wow, this is big. Um, but, you know, once we did our second Four Corners story and we'd been on 60 Minutes and on the front page of The Australian, you know, I sit back now and look and think, wow, this did become really big and, and it became really big really quickly. It's, it's, one, it's the biggest social movement this country has ever seen, bigger than the Vietnam War. It's, it's bigger than anything. And it, it's, um, you know, it, it never really came to that point where it was like, bang, okay, this is huge. And it's just sort of slowly snowballed. And now you stand back and people didn't know what coal seam gas were. Now they do. And that's because of, of how uh, the phenomenon that came with it, with people just saying, hey, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of this. You know, when people realised that the, the, the government wanted hundreds of thousands of wells across Australia, I think a lot of farmers and people in the outback looked and said, well, hang on. We have to be part of this, whether we like it or not. So they looked and did the research, and then before you know it, all these farmers got involved. So you, you've got a lot of people west of the Great Divide saying, hey, guess what? I'm an activist, and I'm against this. And that is how big it actually has become. It's, it's really quite a phenomenon now. 
really, to be honest, coal seam gas was the new black for uh, for protesting back in the, you know back in two thousand and ten, and and now it's just a, a staple part of life for many people. So, did you feel any sort of sense of um, nervousness, anxiety as this thing started to build a pace? I mean, it must have it must have been dawning on you fairly heavily, as you know, as as you were talking about the the, the docos being done, you know, sixty minutes, four corners. It must have had some sort of an impact on your uh, sense of where this was all going. Surely, uh, it definitely did. Look, in the end, but I, like I said, I, hindsight's beautiful. You can sit back now and think, wow, this has been going for six years and look at all this amazing uh, media and education we've been able to provide to people. But while it was happening, I was so wrapped up in, in just trying to right a wrong that I, I didn't actually see how big it had become. And like I said, it's now, we're, I'm going into six years now, you know, now the film's been made and, and I've, I've sat back and just in the last 12 months, you know, being on the project, I've done late line of you know, sunrise, and obviously in all the all the all the major newspapers, it it sort of it sort of sneaks up on you, so to speak. Mm. And, and then when you when you uh, I start to ask people, it just normal when I go to a a cafe or something, I'll say, hey, you know, do you know about coal seam gas? And now ninety percent of people say, wow, yes, we know about coal seam gas and fracking, and and we're not really happy and not keen on it. Back in 2010, 2011, you'd ask people and they'd look at you with a blank, spe- a blank stare. What are you talking about? So, yeah. uh, you know, like it, it never really came to that pivotal moment where it was like an aha, wow, this is huge. But obviously it snowballed into this, this amazing movement of, of all warps of life. You've, you've told me in a previous conversation that your schooling all those years ago probably wasn't the best preparation for this kind of a job. If I can put it that way, you sort of said lack of schooling in the, in that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what were the what were the main things then over the journey that for you personally gave you the skills to go from? Uh, well, let's let's have a look. You've gone from knowing very little about coal seam gas to global activist, filmmaker. I've got a movie in the iTunes store, so that's a that's a pretty good achievement. What were the major things for you that helped you get those skills? Look, I think. For me, coming from a background that didn't, that wasn't sort of uh, com- comparable to what I'm doing now, I had to be smart enough to take advice and and look at all points of view and and look at people you know who were quite successful in that industry and try and replicate what they were doing. So a lot of the, a lot of the ways I became successful in this field was by watching and learning and taking on board advice. Drew Hutton said to me once before, Drew Hutton, he was the uh, part founder of the Greens with Bob Brown. He said, you never uh, negotiate from position of weakness. So I took that on and that was one of my mantras, you know, become strong and then negotiate. And, uh, you know, Liz Hayes from 60 Minutes taught me about characters and about um, having a story and an image that people want to see, which in, in, in the end, uh, was the birth of the, the character Frackman. By uh, taking those lessons that are out there, mm. you've got to take them and put your own spin on it and, and run with it. So it's all out there to learn. It's just whether you're smart enough to take advice from people. And that's my biggest message to people. Always listen to advice and decide whether it's right for you or not. Did the science put you off a little bit? The science was scary. It really was. And then once again, I found the best way to deal with the science was to go to a scientist. I don't have to be a scientist. I don't have to pretend to be a scientist. 
So it's you don't have to know everything, but it's great to pick those people that you trust and use them and their knowledge. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. What you have to do is is learn more about the wheel. So. <laughs> So that that's you know that that's that was my take and everything. I, I wasn't a fracking expert, uh, but you know the National Toxic Network in Australia, who's a fantastic organisation. There was a lady there, Marion Lloyd Smith. Now Marion Lloyd Smith uh, is used to dealing with with um, toxic chemicals and things like that. So I uh, contacted Marion Lloyd Smith and learnt a lot from her. So you, the main message really is. Never close yourself off to a point of view and never close yourself off to information. Books are fantastic. The internet's fantastic. You know, learning is just something that I now you know, strive for and, and, and have a hunger for is this, this knowledge. So I wish I had it back at school, I tell you. I must admit, uh, watching the film, uh, I don't know whether I was supposed to chuckle at this, but I particularly liked the way you learned about how to store chemicals, uh, st- storing those toxic samples in coffee jars uh, Gave me a bit of a laugh. <laughs> Don't worry, it gave me a laugh too. <laughs> Looking back now, do you do you look at that and go, uh, whoops? <laughs> well, that's right. A little bit of research would have gone a long way, you see, back in those early days. And that's, uh, yeah, initially, I just went into head on in like a bull, just, just try and do this and try and do that. And then in the end, when I slowed down and thought, hang on, take stock. Uh, and, and then that's where I learned that, that, you know, the reality is that I'm not a scientist and the best thing for me to do is is actually go to scientists and ask what to do. You know, collecting samples that you want tested in a coffee jar is, you know, is akin to stupidity, I would say. In the end. <laughs> well, the thing, yeah, the thing that I found so interesting in the film was that the things that you were testing for were often volatile and, and kind of disappeared for after a while if you didn't test them quickly enough. Is that right? That's correct. So a lot of these chemicals that they use – they have a flash-off sort of period, so they actually dissolve into the air. So you have to keep them airtight in an airtight container, obviously not a coffee jar. Yeah. Um, so th- they do dissolve. So th- that's, this is one of the, uh, the, the issues that the industry have. They say to the government, hey, you know, we're not using you know, this chemical, but that chemical dissolves and is pretty much undetectable within sort of a week. So unless the authorities are there on the spot to test for it, they don't know it's being used. And those tem- chemicals can be toxic. Uh, underground, they, they, uh, they can generally stay there. But, but when they, as soon as they get um, uh, exposed to the air, they evaporate much the same as fuel. If you put petrol in a, in a plastic jerry can and you do the lid up, you see it expands. Yeah. The, the chemicals are uh, uh, coming off the fuel and you open that lid and they all go. So you've just released all those chemicals and those chemicals are obviously no longer in the fuel. So it's one of those um, situations where you, where you sort of need to be a, a, a far more scientific and far more of a specialist than I ever was to do that sort of thing. I think the reality that we learned from the film, though, is that that part is actually very scary because not only do you have the gas well that has fractured the ground underneath it, just sort of randomly releasing gas that's going to get somehow collected... But you've also got, the, so, so there's the gas part, which you don't want to be breathing anyway, but then you've also got the chemicals, which are very toxic, which are, as you've just described, during normal use, just evaporating into the, into the atmosphere that we breathe. Correct. So the, the, the industry, as Marion Lloyd-Smith taught me, is a toxic lottery. You don't actually know what is going to happen. They have an idea and they hope it all goes well, but unfortunately when... 
just a small percentage of wells go wrong or a small percentage of the processing um, goes wrong, you end up with a toxic mess. And this is the issue with coal seam gas. You have to drill so many wells that you never actually 100% know. They hope they know and they hope things go right. But as we all know with anything, you know, no one heads out, the, heads off to school or on the way to school or on the way to work and wants to have a car accident, but they happen. And when they happen, they're serious. It's exactly the same as coal seam gas. When an accident happens, it's generally serious. So the, the, there's, what you're saying is that there's a, a real element of randomness in the whole mining process. Do they, do they ever sink a well and then think, oh, well, there's nothing there. Let's move on to the next site? They most definitely do. They, uh, they, it's called a P&A, a plug and abandon. So once the, the wells stop producing, they plug and abandon them. So one of the big, biggest issues surrounding a plug and abandonment is they've drilled the well. So they picture this. You've got a, a, a drill that you've, your father or somebody's got in the, in the garage and you put five pieces of timber together and you drill through all of those five pieces of timber. You pull that out and you put in a, a steel pipe. Now, what you're trying to do is, is uh, suck the gas up through that steel pipe. Now, if that steel pipe um, corrodes, which they always do, you have this connectivity between all the layers. So it's exactly the same as a strata un- un- underneath the ground. So we have water aquifers. Those water aquifers do not mix with dirty water aquifers, which are also underground. Some are deeper than, than others. So when you drill through all these layers to get to the the gas underneath or the coal formation where they suck the gas from, you are interconnecting all of those layers. So dirty water to the clean water. And when the steel casings rot, well, what happens? You have like the straw, like a straw into a drink. It can actually contaminate the clean aquifers. Uh, it's once again, not even very good at explaining that, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those situations that they, that the damage is done. And they, they fill those steel pipes full of concrete. Now, most people know in the building trade that concrete uh, corrodes much the same as steel does. Mm. But when they plug and abandon these wells, they're supposed to last forever. And clearly, they're not going to. The, the, the intergenerational problems that we are causing by drilling these wells is unbelievable. It's, it's, it's a very short-sighted sort of goal rush mentality to make as much money as possible, not looking 50, 100, 150, 200 years down the track when our kids, kids, kids are going to be looking at that saying, hang on, were you guys absolutely, you know, crazy? Are you, were you not thinking? And that's one of the <laughs> biggest issues with, with coal seam gas. The legacy that's left will be felt by the people working on walking on the earth today but it's our children and their children and their children who are actually going to pay the biggest price, not us. Well, let's just uh, stay on that, that issue of the, the future children then. You've ended up in a place that doesn't really sound like your uh, standard job pathway. I don't think you went down to the local recruiting office and said, I want to go down this path because I want to be this person in the, at the end. What's your message to younger people now, knowing what we know now and what we think is going to happen in the future? What's your message to young people who might not feel that they're on the standard pathway either? Never give up. Have a dream and believe in it. You, it's 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 funny because I, I didn't go to, to, to high school very long. I, I didn't get a year ten certificate. I, I I quit school and I went into a butcher's apprenticeship and I just worked along the path. I worked on building sites. I did industrial diving, 
and no one ever said to me, one day you will make a difference in this country. But I had the belief in myself and, and I backed myself and took um, messages from other people and knowledge from other people and turned myself into something that I am today. If you, if you bet me a million dollars, you know, even 10 years ago, that I would be in this situation now, I would have taken that bet, I would have doubled it. But the reality is uh, that, that life changes and opportunities uh, present themselves is to grab every opportunity by the horns and run with it because everyone's special. Everyone is special. Everyone has something to teach. It's whether you're smart enough to learn it and it's, and it's whether you can get your message across. It's, it's really been enlightening for me to sit back and meet the, the, the people I've met because, you know, people, people come, to you and say, come to me and say, oh, look, you're doing such a fantastic job. When in actual fact, that person that's just said that, I've seen them at protests, I've seen them writing submissions to Senate inquiries, I've seen them, you know, in the background on a TV. They're, they're actually just as important as I am. They really are. And, and uh, you know, it, it's up to you, the individual, to, to set your path and just go for it. And if it doesn't end up where, where you, you, you actually want it to or you think it will, so be it. It doesn't matter. You've had a go. And, you know, having a go right now, I'm building a house. I'm trying to build a house. I'm not a builder. <laughs> so what did I do? I bring in the contractors. But I'm running a building site and that is new to me. Mm. But I've taken, taken the challenge on and I'm running with it and I'm learning as I go and I'm taking knowledge from people as I go. You know, you can do anything you want in this world. You really, really can. Look at President Obama. Perfect example. The first um, African-American man to to be the president of the United States. Julia Gillard, same again. Whether you like these politicians or not, what an amazing thing she did. She became the first female prime minister of this country. That's amazing. Mm. That is amazing. And that's because she set her heart on it and President Obama set their heart on it and they went for it. And I, I'd imagine the knockbacks they got, those guys got, throughout their lives would have been intense. But what did they do? They got to where they wanted to be. And sometimes, just sometimes, that path changes. I went out there to be quiet (laughs) and and have this this lifestyle of self-sufficiency and look at where it led me. Yeah, the opposite of what you wanted. (laughs) But it's, It's really because those opportunities were presented to me and instead of walking away saying, oh, I'm not a TV person. I'm a bit scared of that, which I definitely was. But you know what? I embraced it. And, and I tell you what, there were some, some muck-ups along the way. There were some, a, a few incidents where I just thought, oh, my God, I'm sitting on TV saying something. I'm thinking I sound really silly and very, very um, you know, self-conscious of, of the way I was, I was speaking. But you know what? I, I just grabbed it and ran with it and look at where we are now. Now I'm looking at standing for local council in Foster here where I'm living. Oh, okay. Great. So that well, all came from standing up and saying, hey, you know, I do count. My message is important and I want people to hear it and, and just never backing down. So um, one, of the, uh, one of the comments that you made earlier in this interview and the one that's sort of coming back now, uh, well, you're inferring it, is the idea of younger people or even yourself taking advice. I think that seems to be a consistent message right throughout this, uh, uh, this story. Were there any people in particular, like if you could nail it down to one or two, whose advice you really look back on and think, yep, that's the person that really changed it for me, who, who would they be? Drew Hutton. He, he was one of the you know, standout people for me. He 
very, very smart man. He'd been in politics for many, many years. He dealt with hostile media, hostile government, and he taught me one foot instead in front of the other. Uh, you're not going to have a win every day, and when you do have a win, enjoy it, and don't be hard on yourself. But Drew Hutton, you know, he was really, really, he's a very, very, very intelligent man, and uh, that's why I think... I owe a lot of my success to Drew Hutton because I, I was I managed to listen, learn, and and you know it doesn't hurt to take notes and go home and study what they say. And mm. before you know it, you know you you can be in a position of power, so to speak. I'm not saying I'm in a position of power, but I definitely do have a voice that people hear. So um, yeah, I, I would say Drew Hutton. Also, um, Kirov Ainsworth, and he's a you know people in the activist movement don't like the Ainsworth family. They're the people that make aristocrat poker machines. They're worth close to a billion dollars. Um, he, uh, we became friends, and he also taught me some lessons about, once again, one, one foot in front of the other. Things don't always go right, but, um, but you know, you if you uh, just keep on going, basically. We've all seen the, the old... Uh, the uh, the meme with the, the 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 person in the pelican's mouth, but they've got the pelican by the throat. Yes, you know? that's right. So it, it's keep on going, never give up. And and uh, those though that was the message that every successful person I ever worked with just said that you know don't give up. Look at Jeremy Buckingham, perfect example. He was a plumber in Orange. He was a plumber. Look at where he is now. He's in the New South Wales State Parliament. Why? Because he didn't give up. Mm. He didn't give up, and and will he go further? Well, I think the the man will because he's he's clearly uh, he's cut his teeth and he's he's shown that he is an intelligent guy that that has a future in politics. So all those people have always said the same thing to me: never give up. So if there's any message I can relay to other people, is never give up and dream big. Yeah, always dream big. And if you don't get there, you didn't fail. You're a, you're a winner because you tried. Right. So presumably the coal seam gas issue is still an issue. How do young people these days get involved? Can they do anything about it? I'm thinking about school-aged children. Some school-aged children now might be thinking, oh, I'm not an activist, I don't know what I am, but this sounds interesting to me. Others might be thinking, oh, actually, I think I might like to study science and this really interests me. Uh, what, what can they do? Well, there's a fantastic uh, organisation called the ACC, the Australian Climate Coalition, and, and that's school-aged children. They do absolutely amazing things. And they're people uh, of school children's age or, or, you know, generally under 20 who are all about the youth and the climate uh, and and the sort of environmental activism. So that's a really good place to start. Lock the Gate is another great place to, to, uh, to get involved in. Now, Lock the Gate was only born about six years ago and now they are the biggest environmental, active environmental um, sort of group in this country. So get on to Lock the Gate, um, you know, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. They're absolutely fantastic. There's something that the school children can do. Or, well and behold, go out on your own. Start your own group. <laughs> that's, that's the way these things work. That there's, you can educate yourself, and that, that's the beauty of this whole movement. It's, it's how much you want to put into it. If you want to educate yourself, then you become a, a source of knowledge. So all of a sudden, people will start coming to you asking new questions. So there's never it's never too late to start a a, uh, a new a group, so to speak. 
uh, that's uh, starting a new group is uh, obviously something that you have quite a bit of experience with. I mean, perhaps not a group, but uh, well, you've started something. You've you made a movie. You've, you've created your own documentary. Correct, correct. And you know what? I wasn't a filmmaker. Once again, I was not a filmmaker. I bought a camera and I thought I'm going to make a film. I quickly worked out with once again some research and speaking to people that I had no chance of making a film. So what did I do? I engaged Richard Todd from Aquarius Productions in in Margaret River. Now, Richard Todd came along and saw the story and thought, wow, okay, this is a, a, an important thing that, that, that needs to be made. So I worked hand-in-hand hand with Richard, and then Richard brought in some other filmmakers. Before you know it, we had a, a budget of over a million dollars of government money that had been um, supplied through Screen Australia, Screen West, and Screen Queensland. Um, so those filmmakers brought that in. So once again, it all comes down to the to taking advice and bringing people into your inner circle that can, that can uh, benefit you, mutually benefit you. I benefited the filmmakers because I had the story, but I couldn't make the film. So obviously you bring in the people that can make the film and look at where we are now. So I don't call myself a filmmaker. I'm more of a participant in a film, but, uh, you know, once again, bring on the people who can do the job. Dane Pratsky, it's an inspiring story. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. And look, please go to uh, The Frackman on Facebook and, and check out me personally or thefrackmanthemovie.com if you're interested in watching the, the uh, DVD online or you can buy the DVD in person now. So the film's out there to watch. Please watch it and friend me, share it round and get educated and get involved. I'm sure you get plenty of takers. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast brought to you by LearnFast. To find out more about the Frackman movie, the issues surrounding coal seam gas in Australia, and what you can do about it, visit frackmanthemovie.com. And to find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au, where you can also subscribe to the blog. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now. Listener.